0: Welcome to Folk Rock Diva Talk, your intersectional destination for all things music, dignity politics, personal growth and development, queer life, fat activism, and general existentials. My name is Lily Lewis, the Folk Rock Diva, and I am here to tell you all about the view from my corner of the universe. These teachings are founded on the premise that there is basic human wisdom that can help to solve the world's problems. This wisdom does not belong to any one culture or religion, nor does it come only from the West or the East. Rather, it is a tradition of human warriorship that has existed in many cultures at many times throughout history. Shoyang Trump Rinpoche, the sacred path of the warrior. So many moons ago now, on an early May night in the wilderness of Northern Colorado, my now wife and I found ourselves arriving at a Buddhist retreat center tucked in the Rocky Mountains just a few miles south of the Wyoming border. Um, several hours later than we had intended to arrive. Uh, That meant that instructions for finding our tent in the campground were left tacked to the registration office door, and we were left to find our way in the dark. (laughs) So we took our Subaru Forester that we called Stella the Moonbeam Down uh, the windy path and found our tent and once we got set up the first thing I noticed was how honestly pissed I was. I felt I'd been hoodwinked when I looked up at the sky and saw the moon um, close enough to feel blanketed by it and the Milky Way close enough to drink from it. I was appalled that someone had kept the stars hidden from me so successfully for so long. <laughs> now, how a girl like me ended up in the wilderness of Colorado in the middle of the summer, uh, it's very difficult for me to sum up, but let's just say I had to go see About a Girl. Um, Liz deeply wanted to get into wilderness therapy, and I deeply wanted to find out whether or not we were going to have a sustainable relationship. So love did what it does and left me uh, in the mountains, living in a tent um, and walking to outhouses in the middle of the night to relieve myself. Hmm. Now, given that I'd come to this land for a girl and not for a new religion, I had no real incentive to uh, drink the Kool-Aid that was being handed out at the time. Um, I saw pretty quickly that there were some problematic things going on. And in fact, um, in recent years, a lot of that um, has come to the fore. But this episode is called The Sacred Path of the Artist, not The Problematic Path of the Seeker. So we'll save that discussion for another episode. So that being said, I have to admit, even though I was only peripherally attached to what was happening in terms of spiritual practice on the land, I found my time there uh, truly transformative. Um, On that land is where I learned I had spent so much of my life preparing to die that I hadn't actually begun the journey of discovering how I intended to live my life. I can report that it was there where I had what I experienced as my first panic attack. Um, It was in the showers, very early on in my stay there. And that should have been my first hint that I was actually living with PTSD, but it took me years to, um, to connect those dots and put that together. It's also where I met my beloved Paul, who I mentioned before now goes by um, the executive shrink. Um, but it would take us years to work together in, um, in sort of a, a healing and training up kind of capacity. And it's even where Liz and I got gay married and made our first attempts at making vows to our community as a couple with a fire pit on a cold March morning in our backyard on the mountainside. So, yes, the place was transformative, even in bite-sized morsels. And one of the morsels I partook of when I was there was, um, was a book called The Sacred Path of the Warrior uh, by the land's founder, Troyong Trumpa Rinpoche, who also founded Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. Um, there's a lot of very basic uh, wisdom in this book that I found super profound, even in its simplicity, but it's way too much for me to summarize in a 20-minute episode of uh, Folk Rock Diva Talk. Um But I will say that I tend to refer to people as warriors with a lens that I gathered from this book. Um, Now, recently I've been kindly reminded that that word warrior can be a little too loaded uh, when applied to people like Black women in America, for example, um, because we've historically been asked to bear far more than our fair load when it comes to the battle for our shared humanity. Um, But my lens uh, for the warrior, the sacred warrior um, and sacred warriorship has more to do with my path as an artist um, than anything else. And I remember leaving the mountain with a more defined sense of my sacred path as an artist. So from my point of view, it's the artist's call to hold our stories, um, especially when words fail. We tell human stories through all kinds of means, whether it's color, or negative spaces, or movement. Um, But more importantly, we're not just, you know, giving a historical account of what humanity has endured. We are carrying forth and representing the emotional memory. Um, Now, I've heard it said that music is most appropriate for this because actually connects directly to the oldest part of our brain um and so the musical repository makes it really hard for us to lie about what has happened to us um if if not literally then at least emotionally um there's a history there there's a record there Take Coltrane's Alabama, for example. You know, right now we're in a time where some politicians are asserting that any clear-eyed, sober telling of any actions that have been performed in this country in the name of racism would actually be a threat to the legitimacy of Western civilization and therefore a tactic meant to bring about the demise of democracy, right? (laughs) Um, But thanks to John Coltrane being impacted by a moment, we have what he captured as a musical moment, as he is an artist who understood his sacred path, uh, attempted to grapple with a church bombing in Alabama in 1963 that took the lives of four little girls, Addie Mae Collins, Carol Denise McNair, Cynthia Wesley, and Carol Rosamond Robertson. Now, Time passes and we see these moments as something that happened in the past, just something that happened, you know? We don't contend with the horror the way an artist must, or the way a child might see it if we were allowed to tell them about it. See, in some ways I feel like children can't help but hold us accountable to our traumas that's just how their brains work, you know? They're still wide open, and they still bear that intrinsic sense of, self, of justice, that basic human wisdom that could help us to solve the world's problems, you know? It hasn't, it hasn't been compromised just yet. And the same might be said for the artist who finds themselves tossed into this vortex when the impact of despair or pain or horror lands. Now, they say all the time that that we artists create to process our emotions, but I'm still not exactly sure what that means. Um, But I would say that we may be creating to register the impact, to register that something significant has happened, to capture something that can be Passed forward in time, so that we can be reminded in times when it's not permitted to tell the stories otherwise. Or or maybe it's to pass it forward in time to update the telling of the story, um, to find out if it means something new, or if something more dense has revealed itself as the time has passed. So, for whatever reason... While I was at this retreat center, I dreamed that I wanted to represent that composition, Alabama, um, but with voices. John Coltrane taught me the story of those four little girls by naming that composition. He left me a breadcrumb. uh, So I went looking. Why did he write this composition and name it Alabama? Um, And then I learned what happened to those four little girls because of this one little piece of art, um, because no one else had told me uh, that someone out of hate had bombed a church that killed four little girls who weren't much younger than me at the time when I was learning that this this music existed. So that story stayed with me and I found myself in a moment later in my life when I wanted to connect with that story. Um, So, yeah, I knew I wanted to do it uh, with just voices, uh, but I couldn't figure out how I was going to approach McCoy Tyner's pedal point uh, in the piano. There's this rumbling, um, destructive uh, pedal in the piano, and just couldn't figure out how to do it with a voice. Then I had another dream, and um, suddenly I realized, well... Tuvan throat singing would be perfect. Um, they're great with drones, and um, I thought it would give all that extra vocal information that's hard to get with other vocal techniques. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Tuvan throat singing, it's where a singer is able to use partials in the overtone series to achieve singing more than one note at a time. Um, it's a pretty miraculous sound, and there are different traditions of it. Some are higher and some are lower pitched. Um, but I woke up with this sort of eureka idea, and as I recall, the very same night that I had this idea, uh, a young man by the name of Bobby Elder Elbers showed up uh, on the land. Um, he was 18 years old, and he was a self-taught throat singer from the West Coast who had spent a little time in a Zen monastery in Japan where they recognized his talents and taught him exactly four chants. One uh, was to invoke the ancestors. Two was an appeal to the Bodhisattva of compassion. Three was to protect the temple. And the fourth chant was um, sort of the Sutra of Sutras, the Heart Sutra, Um and these are the only chance he knew, and they were exactly the chance that I needed to connect with this nonverbal um, emotional information, emotional inheritance left by John Coltrane's composition. But honestly, having the Heart Sutra represented on this new interpretation. Um, was a challenge for me because it required that I both deepen and loosen around what this story meant for me. Um, It asked me to consider um, that things that I had been trained to accept as givens things that I had been trained to take for granted, um, that I was a second-class citizen both as a woman and as a black person, or um, that some people uh, just inherited inferiority, um, and that it had always been that way and always would be that way. It um, it asked me to consider that... Um, Maybe that was a lie that our awareness, um, things that we take for granted are a function of convergence, Um, that they might say something about how things are, but they don't tell us the real truth. So I had to loosen, I had to broaden, I had to widen my lens and lift my gaze and hold space for some higher truths and now as i feel the weight of my traumatic memory um, whether it's personal or generational or societal i sing into those spaces to mark what we've been through to maybe delineate what we're made of and maybe to reach for the impossible possibilities of what we could become. I mean, if everything we're experiencing is a function of convergence, then in some ways all things are still possible. Um, But I hesitate to get too fruitional about this, so yes, yes. All things possible, all hope abandoned to the world beyond my understanding. Gate, gate, para, sam, gate.
1: Do <laughs> I'm
0: rock diva talk by joining our patreon at patreon.com folk rock diva and remember if you're not sure how to be practice radical decency